What if that nagging feeling in the back of your neck was real? What if those hands reaching out from the dark that you believed were there, were there? What if the monster in the basement really existed? And what if there was really something under the bed? Would you have the courage to face your fears? Hello, brave souls, and welcome back to Fear. In this week's episode, we have the final conclusion of The Man in My Basement Takes One Step Closer Every Week. I'm really excited to listen to this last one, because everything leading up to this was, uh, I don't know, the, the story was pretty damn good, so without further ado, let's just get right into the story. If you see him, do not overreact. He may decide to move on. A bump in the night startled me awake. I checked the time, 2.58 a.m. Neon green lights flickered in through the studio apartment window. I sat up on the edge of my bed, stared at the closet door. A white closet door with zigzag patterns etched across it. Another thump above me. I looked up. It was the upstairs neighbors again mulling about at 3 a.m. on a Wednesday night. Rubbing my eyes, I pushed off the bed and strolled up to the window. It was snowing outside. First snowfall of the year. Drifting dots of white dissolved against the asphalt. I was about to turn back when something caught my eye. Across the street, down in the plaza parking lot, a white hatchback with tinted windows. Engine idling. Huh. I shrugged it off. Pulled the blinds shut and crawled back into bed. But now I couldn't sleep. The bumps and scrapes of the upstairs neighbors felt louder. The flickering glow of the neon bar light across the street felt brighter. Everything felt heightened. Like on fast forward, I rolled out of bed, marched across the room, and yanked open the closet door. A bunch of propped up junk toppled out on the floor. Old records, unread books, unopened boxes. I pushed it all away and dug into the back of the closet, throwing junk over my shoulder until I found what I was looking for an old box fan and a red pleated quilt. I stuffed the quilt in the window frame, blocking the outside light. I set the fan up on a chair and blasted it toward my bed, full white noise and darkness. I dug through a few more boxes until I found a pair of orange disposable earplugs. Let's try this again. I climbed into bed and shut my eyes. The gentle gust of box fan against my face as I drifted off to sleep. There was something about that feeling. I felt like movement and movement calms me down. Maybe that's why I enjoy aimless driving sometimes. I shut my eyes and finally fell asleep. I had a dream about Zack, but it was more like a memory than a dream. A vivid flashback playing out in the darkness of sleep like a strange and ethereal film. A memory from the week before Zack died. We found an old car, rusted up and stuck down in the riverbed by the cauldron cliffs. An old 1950s car likely pushed off a cliff from above by some drunk college kids. Zack wanted to jump across the rocks, open the rushing torrents, and stand on top of the old car. I didn't share his enthusiasm. Risking death to stand on a car wasn't my idea of a good time. Zack bugged me about it, but didn't push. We went back home after that, up the winding trails, through the dried woods, past old house and the Rendlesham's. We rounded a corner and stepped out onto the final stretch of trail, but Zack froze pointed straight ahead. 
Down the trail, about 50 feet or less, a man dressed in white, with pinstripe posture, stood with his back to us. But this part never actually happened. It was a false memory, a creation of the strange dream. Or if it did happen, I'd forgotten it. Zach cupped his hands to his mouth and screamed, Hey! But the man didn't move. We both tensed up as long silence tickled by. A growing sense of unease in the air. A summer breeze crawled through the woods behind us and kicked up dry dust from the trail. Sunlight caught through the plumes and the wind faded back to quiet. Then Zach looked back at me. We should go, he whispered. I didn't respond. Brandon? I looked at him. Zach's eyes were filled with uncharacteristic fear. We should. I snapped awake, cold sweat running down my forehead. Thanks to the blacked out window, my room was pitch black now, but something was wrong. I could no longer feel a brush of fan against my face. I pulled out my earplugs. The fan was still on. A whirring hum. I squinted through the dark as a slow and terrible realization crawled over me. Something was stood between me and the fan. Something was stood in the middle of the room. I gripped my teeth, reached for my phone, turned on the screen, and showed it in the room. Empty. The brush of the fan against my face returned. The sense of a presence vanished. I stared into the empty room, waiting for something to happen. Almost willing something to happen. But nothing happened. For five long minutes, nothing happened. I rechecked the time. 3.58 a.m. I crawled out of bed, trudged across the room, flicked on the light, and strode back towards the window. I pulled the blackout quilt back and peered outside. The snow was falling faster now. The parking lot across the street was empty. The white hatchback gone. I looked back over my shoulder. On a hook beside the door, car keys. I drove the number seven highway, a winding mountain road. Headlights cut through the falling snow like warp speed stars. Window wipers wiped back and forth with percussive rhythm. My Toyota reverberating with the drones of rubber against wet asphalt. No other vehicles in sight. Like I said before, movement always calmed me down. Before I owned a car, I used to go for these long, solitary hikes out the mountains. There's something about constant motion, outside, alone, peaceful. I drove for about an hour without stopping, feeling calmer with each passing mile, reminding myself that I'd be away from the house or the basement for months now. Months of completely disregarding the rules of nothing happening. No terrible revelations, no intruder from the basement, no evil doppelgangers, only paranoid nightmares and fleeting moments of fear. Maybe after all that, the rules really did mean nothing. The snow was falling faster now, getting dangerous. I turned off on the 62 exit and wound back to home. The orange swipe of streetlights against the windshield, the drone of my car, the wiping of the wiper. Up ahead, red lights. Yellow hazards blinking on the side of the road. I sped past. The white hatchback with tinted windows. The front hood was popped open, and a man stood on the shoulder, trying to wave me down. But I didn't stop. Something felt wrong. Before even reaching the next exit, my heart changed. Horror stories ran through my head. Stories about broken down cars on lonely winter mountain roads. People freezing to death before the sun ever came up. Begrudgingly, I signaled off the next exit and hauled back around. I pulled a U-turn and parked up behind the white car. Hit my hazard lights. The driver wasn't standing outside anymore. The back door of his car swung open, and he stepped out. Bundled in winter clothes, with a scarf pulled up around his face. There was something vaguely familiar about him. He waved at me, stepped up to the front of his car, and pulled the hood shut. He stepped around to the passenger side and pulled open the door. Hunching over, he reached into his glove box, took out a brown paper envelope, 
and tucked it into his winter coat. I studied him as he pushed the door shut and strode back towards me. Leaning over, I unlocked the passenger side door. The stranger latched the door open, hunched over, and looked at me, his eyes filled with immediate recognition. He pulled his scarf down, and it was Mitch. A knot twisted in my stomach. I hadn't seen him since I saw something crawl out of his mouth and leave his body in a mangled heap on the kitchen floor. Brandon? he said. Not sure if he was actually me. It was dark. The interior light of my car was broken. Mitch? I said back, even though I already knew it was him. Huh. Wow. He looked back over his shoulder. Small world. I nodded. Part of me actually considered just flooring it, getting the fuck out of there. But I didn't. Maybe this was Mitch after all. Maybe his death was nothing but another nightmarish vision. But more than anything, I think I stayed out of curiosity. What are the chances, huh? Said Mitch, turning back to me. I huffed. He was right about that. I'm a little stranded out here. You might have noticed. He ran a hand through snow-speckled jet black hair. Tried calling a tow truck, but the service out here. He threw up his hands. You need a lift? I said, immediately regretting the offer. You don't mind? I shook my head. Exit 25 on your way? Asked Mitch. I'll take the bus from there. We drove in silence for the first five minutes. All the while, the elephant of the past sat between us. Finally, Mitch spoke up. So, how you been? I know exactly what he was talking about. He wanted to know what happened after I said fuck it and threw his list of rules to the curb. But that was the last thing I wanted to talk about. No more ruminating. No more obsessing over answers. Ever since I moved away from the godforsaken house, my life had improved significantly, and that's all that mattered. I've been good, I said. Another awkward silence followed as Mitch expected me to ask him the same. I reached for the radio and turned the knob. Static blared. Every channel was nothing but white noise. Yeah, no signal out here, said Mitch, rubbing his hands together from the cold. I turned off the radio and gripped the steering wheel. How have you been, I finally offered. Up and down, he said. No more work thanks to COVID, so I had to move in with Paul. I raised an eyebrow. Mitch caught my look and shrugged. Thought maybe I was wrong about it, you know? Wrong about what? Some of my theories. Hmm. Mitch turned away and looked out the windows. His breath fogged against the glass. White lines of falling snow streaked past. What brings you upstate? I asked, curiosity slowly building again. Just needed to get out of town. Fair enough. Mitch opened his mouth like he had something to say, but he stopped. Shook his head a little and turned back to look out the window. More silence. He glanced down as his eyes caught something. The chrome switchblade sitting in the cup holder. He reached down and lifted it up, studying it. Where'd you get this? Weed dealer, I said, back in high school. Mitch turned the blade, flicked it open, and flicked it shut. Huh. He tossed it back in the cup holder and leaned back in his seat. I'm gonna get some sleep, he said. Shifting his weight, he nestled his head against the seatbelt and shut his eyes. Despite my paranoia, I felt calmer now. This felt like the real Mitch. But even if it wasn't, I'd be dropping off in a few exits anyway. About 30 minutes later, I pulled off onto exit 25. The car bumped over a snag in the road and Mitch stared awake. Next left up there, he said, rubbing his eyes. We turned down a narrow road, walls of dark forest on either side. About 100 feet ahead, a lonely bus stop, lit only by cold bluish glow of a solitary streetlight. I pulled to a stop in front of it. Thanks, Brandon, said Mitch, reaching for the door. I could tell you wanted to say something else, but he was holding back. Of course, Mitch. Be safe. He nodded, pulled open the door, and paused. He pulled the door shut, turned back to me, and sighed. Reaching into his jacket, he pulled open the brown paper envelope. 
I studied him. It's okay if you don't want to talk about this, but he rubbed his forehead with his palm. I've been digging a little, doing some more research again, and well, his eyes turned deadly serious. I think I've almost figured this thing out. He reached into the envelope and pulled out an inch-thick stack of papers, photos, and documents. I think I know what it wants, what it's trying to do. My curiosity was screaming at me, begging me to listen. Thanks, Mitch. I'm good. He looked at me, confused. I cleared my throat, trying to keep all this in my past now. Mitch stared at me for a long five seconds, then nodded slowly. He slid the stack of papers back into the envelope and reached the door handle. You change your mind, just call me, he said, almost indignant. He pushed the door open and stepped back out of the cold. The snow had turned into a sludgy mix of slush and rain now. Mitch slammed the door shut, wandered up to the bus stop, and sat down on the bench. Clenching my jaw, I shifted into drive and pulled away. I'd like to say I kept driving. I'd like to say I left Mitch at the bus stop, and that was the end of it. That I won out against my obsession for answers. But I didn't. Barely made it 50 feet before I pulled in reverse and drove back. I leaned over and pushed open the passenger side door. He looked at me, not surprised that I had returned. He pushed up from the bench, strode over to the car, sat down in the passenger seat, and pulled the door shut. The engine idled as slush and rain beat down from above. The lukewarm gust of ventilation against my face. Window wipers uselessly wiping the same mess of icy mush back and forth. Mitch reached into his jacket, pulled out the envelope, and placed it on the dashboard. You sure about this? He said. I wasn't. I nodded anyway. Mitch smiled grimly, reached into the envelope, and pulled out a stack of papers. So after he left my apartment, he slowly flipped through the papers as he spoke. I called up Paul, told him what happened, told him you were hysterical. I still don't know why I called him, but I did. I think some part of me still believed he's my dad. I still do. Mitch stopped in a photograph, paper clipped on a page scrawled with manic notes and scribbled coat rack sketches. It was a photo of him, as a kid, with the rest of his family. His mother, Holly, his dad, Paul, and even his estranged sister. All of them stood outside a blue tent dressed for camping, smiling. Mitch grimaced as he flipped to the next page. A month or so after you left, my work fell apart, as I told you. Couldn't afford to pay rent, buy food, so I asked Paul if I could move in. At first, it was out of necessity, but also I started wondering. After our last meeting, if there's a way to figure all this out, maybe even put a stop to it. I guess something told me the answer was at Paul's house. He placed a stack of papers on the dashboard and glanced down. His eyes caught the ashtray, full of cigarette butts. Remnants from my temporary smoke and relapse. You mind if I... Mitch reached into his pocket and pulled out a pack of smokes. Go for it. Mitch nodded, squeezed the cigarette between his lips, pulled out a lighter. He flicked, but no flame. Flicked again, still nothing. I reached into my own pocket, pulled out my lighter, reached across and flicked it on. Mitch leaned forward, inhaling the tip of his cigarette in the flame, and leaned back. Thanks, he said, exhaling the smoke. I tucked the lighter away. Mitch scraped his eyebrows with his thumb. His eyes darted back and forth as he watched the window wiper and seesaw. The blue glow of the streetlight cast shadows of trailing raindrops onto his face, almost like sad clown makeup. He cleared his throat. So I moved in with Paul. Took the guest room. What about his old army friend? Mitch nodded. Lawrence? Apparently his condition worsened. He had to go back down south for full-time care at a real hospital. That's what Paul told me. You saw him, right? Lawrence? I nodded. Covered in bandages? I nodded again. There's no reason to have decades-old burn injuries advantage like that, said Mitch. I turned back and stared out through the windshield. 
Headlights cast in the darkness ahead. The road seemed to stretch out for eternity now. On either side, walls of motionless trees stood like an audience of silent watchers. Ancient. Apathetic. Mitch shuffled through the sack of papers and pulled out another photograph. Look. I looked. The inside of a shed, filled with dozens upon dozens of coat racks. This was in Paul's backyard, said Mitch. He tucked the photo away and pulled out an aerial blueprint of the neighborhood. Lines of blue ink led away from Paul's house in a branched, web-like pattern. He's got tunnels leading to every house in the neighborhood. I think he's the one breaking in, leaving coat racks in the corners. Why? Mitch butted his cigarette on the ashtray. I haven't figured everything out yet, but I'm getting there. He rubbed his nose and continued. Your friend, Zachary Serrano? I think Paul was drunk driving one night, all those years ago, and hit this kid on the interstate. Took his body and buried it in the Ballery Cliffs. I shook my head. I talked with Zach's mother and... She said a guy confessed to it. Mason Parker, right? I didn't respond. Mitch showed me a printout of a news article. A long-haul truck driver who came forward about two years ago, right? How did he know this? Mitch, increasingly fanatic, pulled out another photo and tossed it on the dashboard. A dead body in a basement corner, naked and decomposing. A plastic bag wrapped around its head. It was the same image that flashed through my mind when I was talking to Zach's mom. Where did you get this? That's not important. This guy, Mason Parker, he lost his mind in the months leading up to his suicide. Mitch made finger quotes on the word suicide. His eyes looked slightly crazier with each passing minute. Mason went on a house arrest when he started telling his supervisors that he never actually confessed. That he never even hit anybody. He told them some guy, a drunk driver from a parallel timeline or something, hit and run this kid, then switched places with Mason. He told them this guy could hide behind people's foreheads, look out through their eyes. Of course, they wrote him off as insane. I shook my head. Brandon, I know it sounds crazy, but trust me here. I've almost figured this out. What about Howie? I'm not 100% on him, but I think he's a vessel for the intruder. A channel to spy on new recruits, so to speak. I didn't respond. Mitch pulled out another image. Shards of glass in the road. Police caution tape. A wreck of a blue Toyota hatchback upside down in a ditch. Totaled. That's your car, right? This car? Again, I didn't respond. When you visited my apartment, you told me you almost hit a bear on the way over, right? I squinted at the image. This car had my license plate. If it was a fake, it was a convincing fake. So the next day, Mitch continued. I went out to investigate and found this accident scene. Apparently, the driver died on the impact. I did some more digging, and it turned out the driver's name was Brandon Miller. I didn't know what to say. Brandon, listen to me. I have more proof. He pulled out a copy of a police report, detailing the nature of the crash. This wasn't easy to get a hold of, he said, holding it towards me. I waved it away, starting to feel my sanity slipping away. Brandon, this is important. I think I know how to stop it, too. I think I can get you and maybe even my dad back to normal. I rolled my eyes. So I was dead the whole time or something? No, but this version of you died. He held up another image. A close-up of the driver's seat in the total car. A body hunched over the steering wheel, face hidden. It's just like what happened to my dad when he tried driving his truck off the Ballery Cliffs. I think it's creating another version of you. And I'm that version? No, well, I don't know, maybe. Why? What does it want? I'm still figuring that part out. What does Zach have to do with this? I think my dad killing Zach is what started all this. Like he hit this kid, and somehow the intruder showed up, and helped him escape the consequences. I mean, I have other theories too, this is just one. We could put together what we know, and actually figure this out. Think about it, he said, his eyes filled with manic energy. I'm thinking about it, and it sounds fucking crazy, Mitch. Mitch ignored the slight. 
When I was a kid, like really young, I went out to the garage late one night and my dad was out there, power washing blood off his truck. Told me he hit a coyote and I believed him, but now he trailed off and pulled on another photo. Look, the image was of a severed finger laying atop blood streaked asphalt, a yellow evidence number eight sign beside it. That's from your friend Zach where he died. I winced and looked away. Didn't need to see that. Think about it, Brandon. Mitch continued. You just left town, ignored the rules, and now your life is fucking better? Did you really think you can get away with it that easy? Like the rules didn't mean anything? Did you really think this was over? He looked at me expecting an answer. But I just stared at him, seeing the same crazed obsession in his eyes. The same obsession that almost killed me. Mitch turned away, so I went back to Paul's house. About a week ago and he's not even there. The place is boarded up, overgrown like abandoned for years. I even asked the neighbors about it. It's like he just stopped existing. Mitch? He ignored me. There's too many connections here. Too much evidence. You can't just move on without Brandon. We need to figure this thing out. We can make sure this thing doesn't happen to anybody else. Mitch. We can even figure out why your friend Zach had to die. We can figure out how to save you from this. Save Paul. Mitch. I'm heading upstate to speak with Mason Parker's sister. Ask her about what she said in the days leading up to... Enough! I snapped with bigger spite. Mitch looked at me, his eyes wide and sad, like a scolded dog. Brandon, are you not listening to me? Did you not see the photos? I've moved on, I said plainly, fighting every instinct in my body to keep listening, keep searching for answers. But now I knew enough to know all this searching led nowhere good. True or not, this only led to misery. Mitch stared at me in disbelief. He looked at the sack of papers. This is, theirs. I shook my head and he trailed off in a silent defeat. I stared straight ahead, eyes locked on the road. Mitch sighed and reached the door. He froze, handed the latch. I found your story online. The words hung in the silent air. Mitch's hand slid off the door latch, down to his thigh. You know it's using you, right? Again, he waited for my response, but I remained quiet. You need to take that story down, said Mitch. I shut my eyes, trying to stay calm, trying to focus. Did you seriously forget about no third parties? Brandon? I opened my eyes. You need to take that story down. The more people read it, the more influence he gains. It's using you. Why do you think my dad's encouraged you to pick up writing again? Does that really make sense to you? Thanks, Mitch. I'll think about it. Mitch's eyes shot down to the switchblade in the cup holder, then back to me. His eyes flicked back and forth, considering terrible options. Mitch, I'm not saying I don't believe you. You might even have some of this figured out. I'm sure you do. But you told me yourself. All this obsession, searching for answers, it's not leading anything good. For a moment, his eyes filled with half-understanding. An understanding that faded as he turned away and stared at the window. This is all I got now, he said, placing the brown envelope onto his lap. He pushed open the door and stepped outside. Turning back, he hunched down and met my eyes. Take that story down, he said. But this time it sounded like a threat. A genuine threat. Considering he knew where I lived, he looked back over his shoulder in the dark forest. That's when I noticed something I hadn't before. All night, Mitch's face had been mostly concealed in the darkness. But now in the dim glow of the streetlight, I could see something strange. Scarring at the corners of his lips. Pink and blotchy, like it was cut with a knife and healed over. Subtle, but unmistakable. An image flashed through my mind. Mitch standing in the middle of his apartment kitchen. Head snapped back at gaunt hands pushed out of his throat, and the corners of his lips started tearing. See you around, Brandon, said Mitch, tucking the envelope away and pushing the door shut. He wandered back towards the bus stop. 
I looked straight ahead and took another deep breath. I exhaled. I shifted into forward, pulled a U-turn, and drove away. At the four-way stop, about a hundred feet down the road, I reached up to adjust the rearview mirror and... The bus stop was empty. Mitch was gone. I looked back over my shoulder. A crawling chill slid down my spine. He was standing in the middle of the road, beneath the streetlight. His back turned to me. With pinstripe posture, icy rain and slush beat down from above. He stood motionless, unaffected. The light flickered and I almost expected him to disappear or move closer, but he didn't. He just stood in the exact same spot, staring out in the endless dark, rigid. I floored the fuck out of there, sped all the way home and never looked back. That was the last time I saw Mitch, or at least the version of him. But something tells me he'll show up again. Maybe in a month. Maybe in a year. Maybe on my deathbed. I know the intruder isn't finished with me yet, but I'm okay with that. I don't think he's finished with any of us. I'd be lying if I said Mitch's theories don't bother me. Despite all of his insanity, some of it actually made sense. A disturbing amount of sense. For three weeks straight, I fought the urge to investigate further. Fought the urge to start googling Mason Parker, Paul Carver, Zachary Serrano. I told myself it was all part of the intruder's games. The photos, the threads, all of it was just bait. Tantalizing crumbs of half-truths. All designed to pull me back into the clusterfuck of convoluted conspiracy. It wasn't easy, but I resisted. I went for a hike last week. I needed to clear my head. So I drove downstate. Went to the same trails Zach and I used to explore as kids. I dressed for winter with a snack-filled backpack and pack of vanilla-flavored cigarillos. Figured I'd earned a one-time relapse after pushing through all this. I brought my switchblade along too, just in case. Everything felt different out here now, smaller. Covered in patches of melting snow, I wandered down the winding hills. Down past Old House, past the Rendlesham's, down towards the base of the Cauldron Cliffs. The old rusted car was still there too half stuck in the frozen riverbed. I stepped up to the edge of the bank. The air was crisp. A gentle breeze swept up from downriver and pushed through me like a spirit. I stepped out, setting a foot under the ice. It was solid, like concrete. I set both feet out. It felt safe. I shuffled across the river towards the abandoned car, slipped as I went. I stood on top of the rusty car, in the middle of the icy riverbed at the bottom of the cauldron cliffs. I pulled the smoke out, lit up, inhaled. The warm rush of nicotine poured through me like an old but toxic friend. I'd like to say I had some profound insight here, some meaningful revelation, but I didn't. If anything, I just felt sadder about Zack than I ever felt before. I sat there for about an hour, maybe two. It was hard to know. Another breeze pushed up from downriver and chilled through me. It was cold. It was getting colder. I exhaled and tucked the pack of smokes back in my bag and pushed up from the dead car and hobbled my way back across the icy riverbed and stepped up onto the riverbank. Time to go home. I made my way back up the winding trails, up past Old House, past the Rendlesham's, over Planters Creek. I turned the corner and stepped onto the last stretch of long, straight path through the sparse winter forest, the same path from my last member of Zack. I kept walking in. A branch snapped behind me. I spun around. About 20 feet down the path, a grizzly, malnourished and gaunt, lumbering onto the trail. I froze. The bear stared at me and huffed. Hot fog pushed out through his nostrils. Fear rushed through me like a knife. I stepped backwards, started to turn away, started to think about running, but I stopped. I turned back. I stared into the old creature's silent eyes. I took a deep breath. I exhaled. The bear raised its head, studied me, judging me. 
Hey, I said, as calm as I can manage. How have you been? The bear's head tilted slightly, and it took a quick step forward. I didn't move. I kept talking. I told her about how I used to go hiking up here with my friend Zach. I told her about my year. All the while, slowly backing up, the bear matching my pace, the gap between us shrinking with each step. I stopped moving, reached back, took off my bag, squat down, and placed on the dental ground. I rose back to standing and took another careful step backwards. The bear matched me, pushed forward as I stepped back. I stopped. I gritted my teeth and took a step forward. I stepped towards the bear. It looked at me, confused. Primal fear shuffled through my body like a deck of manic cards. But I didn't have time to worry about that right now. The bear sniffed the air again, then took another, more cautious step forward, and another one. Everything in my body screamed at me to run, screamed at me to turn heel and bolt, but I didn't. I stood motionless, eyes locked with the bear. She reached in the pack of the ground and bent forward, sniffing the bag and turning it over with her nose. I exhaled slowly and took another step back. She looked at me, almost looked annoyed at my being there now. She went back to biting and pawing at the bag. I took another step, and another one. One step after another until I was 50 feet away. Until I was 100 feet away. 200 feet. I walked backwards until I reached the bend. Rounded the corner, walked to the parking lot, got in my car, and drove back home. Of course, I know this isn't done. I don't think it ever will be. I know I haven't seen the last of Mitch, Howie, maybe even Paul. I know Mitch isn't going to stop until the story is taken down, and something tells me the intruder will follow me until the day I die. I learned to live with that. Whatever happens, I'm okay with it. I'm not happy about it, but I'll accept it. Honestly though, Mitch is probably right. I even considered deleting this story. It seems likely the intruder, if he's real, might be using me. But I don't care anymore. Why would I? For the first time in my life, I'm okay with waking up in the morning and existing. And as much as I hate to admit it, ever since the intruder showed up, ever since I stopped following those stupid rules, ever since I moved on, my life's only gotten better. Maybe yours will too. 12-23-2020 Edit I saw Mitch's car parked across the street today. This is not the end. I just wanted to take a second and, and thank Polterkites for allowing me to actually use this story for the podcast. I've really, really, really enjoyed this story. Um, it had a lot of cool little twists and turns there, and I think it left enough open-ended at the end to make it feel like a fulfilling story and allow you to just fill in the blanks with your own imagination, which I tend to like in stories. I don't really like it when it's all in a nice, neat bow at the end. I like a little bit of unknown, so I can just, I don't know, come up with stuff of my own. But that's going to do it for this week. I hope you enjoyed the story, and hopefully next week, maybe we can dig through more of Polterkites' stories and see if we can find another good little set of stories, or at least a one-off, or a couple one-offs. So if you want to have your story shown on the podcast, go ahead and send it over to podcastfear at gmail.com. That's podcastfear at gmail.com and I will go ahead and I will showcase you in one of the next uh, episodes whatever that one will be as always I appreciate you listening to the end 
If you could really help me out, you could uh, share this with whoever you want. I'm sure your grandma would love it. And until next time, guys, always remember to face your fears.